Welcome to All About Almodovar, an introduction to loving the films of Pedro Almodovar. I'm Ingu Kang, a critic at The Hollywood Reporter, and today I have with me my usual co-host, Slate podcast producer Daniel Schrader. Hey, Ingu. And our first guest, Almodovar expert and co-host of Slate's working podcast, June Thomas. We're so excited you're here, June. Well, I am very, very excited to be here. Always happy to talk about Pedro. <laughs> this is going to be so much fun. I can't wait. So, June, I know you've interviewed Almodovar a few times. Uh-huh. And I fell in love with his work in high school. And Daniel has been head over heels uh, in love with him since we started this show. I know you have a long history with Almodovar and also with Spain. So hmm. tell us a little about that. Or a lot about that. All about that, maybe. I first went to Spain in the mid-80s, and I lived actually very close to where um, the action of Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down takes part near Tueca, near the Telefonica building where Almodovar uh, worked for many years when he first moved to Madrid. Spent a year there, and then at that point I was there with a partner. In 1990, I spent another year there, this time on my own, and lived in a very similar neighborhood. Um, the first time around, I felt like it, it was a little bit later, literally, than La Movida, the, the changing of the, the post-Franco opening of, of Spanish society. But it definitely was still a period of change. People were still kind of figuring out what was okay, uh, maybe not pushing things to quite the extent that Almodovar has and did. But I I do feel a connection with, with the the setting of his first crazy movies, which are kind of unwatchable, honestly, at this point, but still, because as we know, he's very repetitive, still inform uh, the works that he's been making in more recent years. Yeah, we watched Pepe Lucy Bohm together, actually, and it was a really fun mess. We, we <laughs> might do a bonus episode about it later. <laughs> exactly. There's, actually, there's one of his movies that I haven't seen, which um, when I was doing a completist for Slate, I tried to find a copy. I had various people trying to find ways of making And that's the, his first movie, Foyer, Foyer, Foyer Me Tim, which of course means fuck, fuck, fuck me, Tim, which apparently is now lost to history, which seems tragic. But I have seen all the rest many times. How did you get into Almodovar? Um, I think it was just that he was... I, I, I love Spanish movies. There's a... I know it's really reductive to talk about countries or a national population like Spaniards are like this, English people are like this at the same time. There's something about Spanish cinema, the humor of it and the there's the you know that Greek what is it tragedy comedy mask they're very close together. That's Spain and that's Spanish film. Um you're the kind of the the distance between laughing your ass off and crying and just like having your very soul rent open is just so close. And uh, certainly Almodovar is a part of that. Um, he goes from crazy, insane, just bananas, bonkers. And I guess humor sometimes. Sometimes you, you're kind of laughing out of discomfort and like, well, I guess what? that's funny. Am I supposed to be laughing right now? Exactly. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, he can really like, Nobody can make me cry about things that I'm not actually sentimental about, like family. I don't care. 
but then like he you know he makes me have all these feelings so that's that's an incredible talent and I think because of the you know I, I first watched his movies when I lived in Spain and um so there's a kind of you know it's a nostalgia for young me uh and uh the, the sort of rootless person I was then and you know I've been following his career he's like maybe the person who's you know been solidly making stuff that's interesting usually good sometimes brilliant for the longest period of time so like he's been kind of that that milestone you know if it's if it's 1990 it must be Atame you know like that kind of uh what what phase of Almodovar's career are we in now um so yeah he, it's my longest uh, my longest artistic relationship I think In a Spectrum Culture feature, nominating Almodovar as one of the 10 best living directors, critic Dan Seeger wrote, Pedro Almodovar is too daring a director to consistently crank out unassailably great movies. Last week, in our discussion of The Law of Desire, we saw the kind of wildly compelling messiness that Almodovar's daring can yield. This week, we're continuing on that daring and definitely assailable track <laughs> with 1990s Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, starring Antonio Banderas as Ricky, a recently released psychiatric patient, and Victoria Abril as Marina, the porn actress turned horror actress that he kidnaps and attempts to start a heartfelt romance with. The following year, Disney's The Beauty and the Beast came out, so apparently the 90s started out with Stockholm Syndrome taking over the cinema. <laughs> Daniel, what happens in the actually summarizable Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down? Yes, well, thankfully, it's not as uh, unwieldy as the plot of last week's Law of Desire, which I still don't think we fully got the plot of, but... Um, <laughs> So this movie uh, opens with Ricky Antonio Banderas uh, at a psychiatric hospital, and he's being released into the world, but not before giving uh, the hospital director one last fuck. Um, and then he goes to the film studio where Marina is filming her latest movie, a B-horror movie from this director, Maximo, who is close to death doing some great wheelchair work. I'm really impressed with his ability to get around. So Ricky shows up, steals some stuff, uh, including keys to Marina's apartment, and then follows her home to kidnap her and force her to love him. He breaks one of her teeth, which made me immediately think of June Thomas. Of course. Um, <laughs> steals painkillers for her ends up getting beat up because of the stealing of said painkillers, which then possibly makes Marina actually fall in love with him. And we've also got her sister Lola trying to figure out what's going on and where everybody is. And um, after a bunch of Michigas, Lola finds Marina in her neighbor's apartment, rescues her, and they get away only for Marina to decide she just needs to go back to Ricky and meets up with him at in his hometown uh, before they all drive off together singing uh, Resistire, which I have been bopping my head to all morning long. So, <laughs> uh, One really fascinating thing about this is that Amadovar said that the penthouse that Peppa lives in in Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown was so expensive for them to make, they thought, we need to have another movie set in this apartment that we already built it looked uh, familiar it was, 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, so it's actually shot in that apartment because they thought we spent so much money on this. We got to get some more use out of it. <laughs> I love finding that out because I wrote down in my notes, how big are Spanish apartments? Because <laughs> like when Lola walks in and she's like drops her stuff off in those awesome cardboard chairs, um, the ceilings are as tall as double her. And I just didn't understand <laughs> the space of anything. So I love knowing that. Um, good use. Good job. Yeah. Did you guys like this movie? It's so hard to say it's <laughs> because there are some there's some very touching moments in it. They're mostly around family and the kind of various notions of family. There's some gross parts of it, but not as gross as in some other movies of his. You know, the very concept of uh, the way that Ricky courts uh, Marina, the way... You know, Quartz is certainly her. a word for it. Yeah, exactly. He strikes her. And actually, you know, I, I was in a weird way. You know, sometimes you watch a movie and you kind of feel bad about yourself because of your response. When he first goes to the um, movie studio and he goes through the, you know, the dressing room and he's taking people's stuff, like I actually was kind of like that really upset me. And I'd, I'd forgotten about that. I, I remembered what happened with Marina, of course. It was controversial, you know, from the start. But I was like, oh, my God, no, he really is a bad guy. And then I was like, oh, my God, but you know what he does later? That's that's the least of it. Um, so it, I, there's it, like a scene where he finds out her address from like a call sheet or something. Yeah. Yep. And that I found very – I also knew what was coming. But I also yeah. found that extremely sickening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's weird that that – so, yeah, is there's a lot of stuff that's not pleasant in it. And I think I always, at this point, default to kind of making notes about all the the themes and the repetitions. Um, and so I can enjoy it from that thinking, oh, that shows up. Oh, look, there's there's Pedro's mom. You know, oh, things, like, <laughs> things like that um, that kind of distract me from kind of the horror that's at the middle of this film. Um, what about you guys? I well, my first question after watching this now twice is: Are straight people okay? Because <laughs> um, gosh, it, this was a terrifying film in a lot of ways. Uh, it was a fascinating watch after last week's Law of Desire because, as a back to back of like Antonio Banderas as the hot, sexy murderer type, mm. uh, it's certainly a uh, the gay and the straight take on it, which I, I liked, but I did not care for this movie for the most part. I There are parts of it that I would pull out as things I want mm-hmm. to return to forever. I would forever watch Lola perform a song at a party. That was <laughs> one of my favorite moments. She is my favorite character. I loved that uh, she got a much meatier role than her uh, little stint in Women on the Verge, which uh, she was a delight. And I'm disappointed that she's not in more of his work after this. Um, she's a great actress. I also really loved the uh, journalist who's interviewing her at, at the beginning, uh, Monse. She's yeah. she's a sweet delight. But um, last night, after finishing this movie for the first time, I liked it. I was like smiling through the end as they're singing together, and he kisses Lola on the cheek, and everybody's happy, and it's fine. But then, as I watched it again this morning, and I was reminded of how disgusting I felt in the first two-thirds of it actually because mm-hmm. at first I was like okay maybe this is changes at the halfway point and like after he's been beat up and you get that beautiful 
almost like religious imagery, I think, of her caring for him and cleaning him up. And that's when I thought like, oh, cool, I'm back on board with this. But then the tension is still there of he is actually a terrifying being, even after that moment. And that I I had forgot or had forgotten or chose to forget that mm-hmm. as I finished it and was like, I had kind of Stockholm syndromed myself and had to watch it a second time to remember like, oh no, this is horrifying. So I didn't love it. But what about you, Ingu? <laughs> I also did not like this movie. I thought that we should talk about it partly because this is a podcast about how much we love Pedro Almodovar movies, but I think this is also a podcast about honestly reckoning with his work. And so I thought we should have a film that is basically going to be super problematic and uncomfortable how? for contemporary o- <laughs> and uncomfortable for contemporary audiences. This one and Kika are the two films I think that are that have been most consistently targets of not inaccurate accusations Mm -hmm. of misogyny. Mm -hmm. But I sort of want to push back a little bit on the the repellentness of Antonio Banderas because what I really love about his performance here is that constantly there is like two warring things going on on his face all the time. In the script, Almodovar wrote, his smile is that of an innocent child, Mm -hmm. his eyes those of a tiger. And starting from when he is in that psychiatric hospital, he has this extremely boyish demeanor. And at the same time, his eyes are definitely demented and so passionate. And I think that there is this sort of really maybe interesting, maybe offensive (laughs) paralleling between his compulsion to possess Marina with Marina's drug addiction, which ends up being one of the reasons why she's able to be kidnapped in the first place, because everyone just assumes she's fallen off the horse. And so they don't really bother to go look for her. And so is the movie sort of defensible? I'm not really sure. Do I like that he is going for this really outrageous thing where he takes a bunch of horror elements and he tries to make those horror elements shoehorned into a romantic plot? I think I admire what he's trying to do more than I like the movie. Let me, if I may, uh, I'm taking over Yell's podcast, but let me offer another... That's why we brought you. (laughs) Another potential defense. Um, I, you know... I never really know, as it, as you said, Ingo. I have uh, interviewed uh, Almodovar three times, and I'm every single time I'm kind of impressed by him. He seems like a super sweet guy, which like somebody uh, on his level, like no, you're not going to be sweet if you're that successful. Um, very smart, very thoughtful. You know the kind of things that someone like us is going to are the, the traits that we'll enjoy. Um, but I don't know to what extent we can always believe what he says. When this movie came out, there was, you know, again, none of us are going to be shocked that there were there was pushback. And he f- feigned surprise. Um, you know, to him, it's like, no, you're, you're taking it, you know, me, too macho. Literally. You're taking it too literally. It's clearly, you know, this, this is all that stuff in the movie. The, the, you know, the, this is not the real world. This is not realistic. Well... Uh, you know, you could say that about any movie to a certain extent. Um, so he, you know, when he was kind of 
attacked in, in Berlin at the Berlin Film Festival, he made that defense. There's another possible defense, which is basically earlier, uh, Daniel, uh, you said, are the straight people okay? Are the heterosexuals okay? It's also like, should we ever deal with men? Because there is this contrast of like, when, when all of the men in this movie are awful, Maximo, the director, is just so messed up. I mean, he also prefigures the character of the director that, you know, develops in Almodovar movies. But anyway, he's gross. He's, um, you know, taking advantage of Marina. And Marina knows this. Marina knows what men want. Marina, uh, who has been a porn actress, kind of knows what you do to just kind of get along with men to make your way, way in the world. You don't really, it's not the real world. It's not the truth. It's not where you actually share your true feelings. You only do that with women. She does that with her sister. Um, you know, her sister Lola hears the truth from her mother when they're talking. Like you only, when they're talking on the phone, <laughs> the mother tells the truth about her her niece, who is also her actual niece. Um, she was also... Um, oh, that's actually, great. Yeah, he's, well, actually, she was... Pedro's niece, so I guess she's her great niece or whatever. But like, is it just that when when women are dealing with men, you always have to kind of fake it? And so, is this another like? Is it might that be a possible reading of this movie? I don't know. Or every Almodovar movie? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I think one of the reasons why this movie is a little bit hard to cotton to, and I found my interest in the movie actually lacking quite a bit in the second hour until her sister rescues her. And I think one of the reasons for that is that Marina is not really very well developed as a protagonist. And I think if we had known something maybe about her porn past or how she views her previous work or how even she views this switch from porn to horror, if we had gotten any of that, I think it would have helped contextualize her a little bit more. And I think the most generous way I could read Ricky and Marina's relationship is that she is basically stuck between two men in this movie. And she decides, well, one of these is actually willing to be vulnerable with me mm -hmm. and actually seems to care about me, whereas the other one only wants to jerk off to my movies. And so if those are my two choices, then I'm going to go for this one. But Almodovar sort of has to artificially put her in the situation where her life is so decontextualized that that is the only thing in her life, which I don't know. She's like a 30 something, 30 ish woman, maybe like I bet she has other stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. We find that the, the sort of backstory about her, you know, like her and I guess Lola having grown up in the circus, uh, which, of course, you know, happens in this this bizarre little episode where she is leaving the the studio and she runs into kind of a rag and bone man uh, and his horse and she kind of looks at the horse's hoof and you know, like we were, when we do that was learn, one of my favorite moments. Yeah, of hers. exactly. You know, we we do learn like that's her her past, her her expertise, her knowledge. Like it's in these weird things that are 
like that were imposed on her by other people. She knows like to take off her panties when she's going to do a scene. It might be a little uncomfortable, but it's what people want. It's, you know, it's going to be the easiest thing. She knows that you should, um, you know, look at a horse, you know, protect a horse's hooves, you know, otherwise the horse might get gangrene and die. Um, you know, she, she does have these odd little Protective bits elements. of knowledge. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's, yeah, I agree completely. She's, she's not a full person. I do think it's interesting, though, through, like, her and Ricky, that it, it seems like he's getting, Almodovar is getting at the, like, different ways that uh, men and women have power in relationships. Like, Marina doesn't have any power it, over Ricky at all until they have sex. And then mm-hmm. after, that's, like, the turning point where she's then able to be, like, set the table. And like, do this, do that. And kind of starts to take some power herself. And mm-hmm. he has had this control so much because he has physically assaulted her and has tied her up and everything. And that she doesn't actually get that power until she has sex with him. And uh, so it's like, sh- we don't even know who she is until she has sex almost. Um, Can we talk about that sex scene though? <laughs> yes. So to sort of lay out the scene, I guess. So early in the movie, Ricky had basically beat up and stolen from a drug dealer played by Rossi da Palma. And then later, when he goes to go get more drugs, she sees him and basically beats him up along with a couple of her friends. And so by the time he comes back to the apartment... He basically has cut some bruises all over his face. And he says something along the lines of, like, the only memory that I have of my parents who died when I was three is that uh, it's of my mom shaving my dad. And basically, I think between the bruises and the vulnerability, that's the moment at which Marina decides, oh, I actually like this, like, incredibly handsome, incredibly rude man. And so I mean, they have... Uh, like, if a guy looking like Antonio Banderas without many clothes on is sitting in front of me. <laughs> sure. Yes. Okay. I- I'll forget about what Even you've done. He's like covered in blood. There's two things I really lo- love about this sex scene. One is that he is willing to have sex with her, even though he is completely beat up. And so basically every thrust that he makes, he is in excruciating pain. But he's like, no, I'm going to go for it. Like, I might <laughs> never get this chance again. The other is this, like, very funny scene where after a while, uh, Almodovar points his camera upward and you have this sort of kaleidoscopic view of the two of them fucking. And so you see them refracted through this weird mirrored ceiling Mm -hmm. and there's something like nine different reflections of them. And so (laughs) it's a little weird to me because on the one hand, I think that he wants you to think this is romantic on the other hand there's this almost sort of invitation to laugh at like the ridiculousness of the scene through like the iron ironization process of like Mm -hmm. that kaleidoscope image and so i think that was a point at which i wasn't sure how i was supposed to feel but in like a bad way instead of the usual good almodovar way yeah i mean in my interpretation of that was that pepe whose um whose apartment they're in at that point then her neighbor who also works at the the movie studio is that he has you know a mirrored ceiling because he's a player and so it was kind of the a contrast between the romance that 
that Ricky, in his weird, you know, childlike way, he's, he, you know, he sees relationships in a very romantic way, she in a much more transactional way, and, and okay, here's Pepe's mirrored ceiling, like, he he just has these weird, like, I guess, unglamour, I don't know quite what the word is, it's because it's supposed that it's like almost like the Playboy Mansion kind of idea of sex. Um, it's like a or, very artificial, very yeah. forced sexual... Yeah, a porny or sort yeah. of, yeah. But then why have it as that POV? Yeah. Well, because I, I feel like it's, to me at least, I read it in an entirely different way than both of you, which is mixed with all of the Catholic imagery we have, especially like in the opening shot of the zoom out of the mother mm-hmm. and son. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's like a shot of Jesus holding a lamb, uh, stuff like that. It To me, it felt very like this is an archetypal story in a way of like this, like this is a very common story for man and woman since the beginning of Christianity type of thing. Like, and so the showing of multiple selves having sex is that like, this isn't just their story. This is the story of men and women. Oh, and actually in that opening scene of the, you know, the, the sacred heart, uh, you know, in the, in the psychiatric, it, it was weirdly, uh, kind of, it was like the the Warhol version of the Sacred Heart, where mm-hmm. there were three Jesuses, three Marys, um, in a like paired triptychs. So yeah, that was also multiple imagery of man and woman. So yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the other thing too, the the thing that people always um, talk about in that sex scene was that it doesn't stop after he comes. You know that 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 they keep on, and that she's like moving him around, like no, don't pull out. You know, like that. That um, it is about her pleasure, too, which, like, yeah, it's a bare minimum after everything that they've gone through. But, um, you know, like, you know. Well, and it's also about, like, that, that the, like, ecstasy of emotion. It, it brings me back to, like, the, I don't, his, like, heightening of feeling and I don't know when I'm going to cry or what I'm going to feel yeah, next. Yeah, and yeah. she's, like, he says to her, don't laugh. And then, but then she does laugh anyway, but it's so obvious as like this laugh isn't because she finds this funny or because like this is a comical situation, but just because like the laughter is the only way she can purge that feeling that she has of whatever this sex means. Yeah. The one other part about the digmatization that we see (laughs) is for the longest time, Ricky has been saying, Uh, We had sex last year when we met at a club and she doesn't remember. And then after they have sex, she's like, oh, I remember you. And it's funny that we finally get a sense of her like outside of this relationship Mm. or sort of like in any way having some sort of agency within this relationship. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For like a movie that like I really wish was funnier. um, I feel like I really treasured every little tiny joke there was in this movie. And so I was grateful for it. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem with the humor is that they don't get enough of it. Like, there is not enough humor between Ricky and Marina. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think, though, that we would have been even more clear that it was really not okay it being the relationship between Ricky and Marina, if somehow they had introduced some humor, like it would have, you know, he he hits her. He, you know, he breaks her tooth. She's in pain. Um, she's trying to get away. Like, 
I can't really imagine that even in the world of, you know, Almodovar or Spanish humor that you could really kind of get a lot of, I mean, and they do it by making Lola be funny, by the doctor being... Um, Maria Barranco. Yeah, from Women on the Verge. And, and just, and you know, Rossi De Palma being this <laughs> very unlikely uh, drug dealer or, you know, just even when, when Ricky goes and he's waiting for Rossi De Palma to come back with the drugs and he's just kind of having this bizarre conversation you know like it's little moments like that but you couldn't it it just seems impossible to me to have introduced humor between the two main characters who are all can only be together there can't be other people with them until you know there's some till their relationship changes yeah well exactly i think that's when it kind of would need to come in it because this is like we're watching it's kind of like a gone girl scenario or like a punch and judy situation of like yeah they're yeah they they almost need that like she does need to hit him back more and that's actually i not that i think that almodovar thinks that women have no agency in relationships with men it is very interesting to me to think about the way that like Antonio Banderas's character in Law of Desire forces his way into a man's life and how that doesn't work because the man is just like, whatever, I'm uninterested. And like, just won't even, like, I even, I feel like even if he had tied Pablo up, Pablo would have just been like, okay, and? Uh, whereas like here, it's the because of the power imbalance of like man to woman, there is so much more control he has and uh, so much less ability she has to get out because of whether it's the societal ideals of like, oh, I just can't rock the boat. I need to like or like, as you said, like how she knows how to like handle men more in her life and that like actually the way that she's grown up to learn how to handle them is actually what serves her wrong in this. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, at the beginning when he comes in, you know, she's like, okay, you know, let's get it over with. Let's, you know. Just rape me already. Exactly. And I mean, and I can't, I mean, I keep, as we've been talking, I'm like, I can't believe that I could say he choose, like, at least he doesn't rape her. Because like, but she's, you know, she's not willing to be raped. I mean, there's the language around this is, this is the nature of the, of the, the challenge of this movie. But like, that he, that there is this innocence about him that despite, you know, robbing people, breaking into places, you know, striking her, uh, kidnapping her, you know, tying her up, all of these things, all these undeniably negative things, the, there are things that he doesn't do. There are, there are limits for him. Um, and so even though I think... I mean, he seems like, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Is he a psychopath? Is he a sociopath? It doesn't really matter, but he that's not his, he's actually not a rapist. <laughs> <laughs> and from the psychopath angle, like, I mean, with him getting out, having tricked judges into thinking that he's sane with uh, um, Julieta Serrano's character from Women on the Verge tricking the, like, insane asylum into letting her out. Who's crazy and who gets to decide who's crazy? And, like who among us hasn't ever experienced that ver- that craziness to yeah. t- to some level or not i'm not saying that like any of us are obsessed enough to well i'm not saying that either of you are obsessed enough <laughs> with a person to uh break into their home in any way but um that there is a level of obsession that people have felt that we've all experienced about other people or about things in our lives and that like 
is there a sane version of obsession? I think this is where the horror elements come in fairly interestingly, because so Mm. much of this movie, as I said before, is this attempt to, sorry, like marry horror with romance. And Almodovar has never made a straight up horror movie, although he's flirted a lot with. I mean, what about the the skin I live in? Yes, that would be his most um, obvious example. But I think that there's a lot of, he really loves the elements of horror, I think, that correspond to melodrama. He really likes these like bright splashes of color. He loves the heightened emotions. He loves the sort of matter of fact acceptance of violence. He loves the almost compulsory nature of extreme behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, like a serial Mm -hmm. killer in a slasher isn't going around saying, well, I have the choice today to like murder five girls or not. Let me think about this from like a pro-con list. <laughs> and so I think that those are the elements that he really loves. And one thing that we haven't talked about the soundtrack of this movie by Ennio Morricone. And I found it very like obtrusive and kind of annoying, but it also brought me back a lot to the original Suspiria. Um, especially in that scene in the movie within the movie where Marina's character is facing off against this monster that wants to possess her, which is sort of obviously foreshadowing of what's going to come. And we initially see him uh, outlined by these like billowing white curtains and everything is white and black and red and it seems extremely Suspiria. And (laughs) I just really loved all of that. And you could tell that... Pedro, you could tell that Amadova really was relishing these details, but also wanted to use them as fodder for his own genre play, as opposed to engaging in it himself. Yeah, I mean, first, there are two things I want to say. The first, since you mentioned uh, The Skin I Lived In and, and his avoidance of straight up horror, I think uh, The Skin I Live In and Kika, which also has elements, I think are the two movies that have full-on undeniable rape in a really gross... Like They're actually very similar scenes, as he often does. He kind of replays a scene from one movie and another movie, and it's it's like a really, really just gross rape. And those are his horror movies. So it's like, it's... it's a, Don't go there again, please, Pedro. Um, and the other thing, which has now left my head... Oh, oh yeah, so, so yeah, in those scenes, the scene, um, the scene within a movie, you know, then... It goes after that uh, billowing and the white curtains and everything. Then we get to the kind of rewritten final scene where, you know, she does the lassoing and and the going out the window, killing him that way. It's it's like a weird, you know, coup de theatre, you know, crazy. Oh, my God. All because we have to save the couch. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The things we can do in the movies. But also when she gets onto the, you know, out the window, it's another like one of the most repeated Almodovar scenes, which is a person after a moment of, um, you know, breakthrough, some kind of, um, you know, big moment, getting wet, being soaked, having water, just like rain or a shower or, you know, false rain, you know, in Law of Desire, the famous scene with the trash men, which is also repeated when Antonio Banderas gets woken up by the trash men. Like, 
it then and of course that's a kind of a religious well, imagery and and real quick you're making me think of the scene in uh women on the verge when rossi de palma is asleep and yes. uh carmen maura sprays her with water yep. which now makes me think like is that the moment that she had yep. her orgasm that like changed who she was yeah and that's and that's very you know i think that's religious i think that's like holy water or baptism and cleanliness and cleaning and new starts and all of those things and and so you know, and also, of course, movies in movies is another of his many, many things. So, like, I don't know if I, this is relatively early, relatively, um, you know, he's it's, it's like among the first iterations of something that will keep coming back. But it is, yeah, all of these set pieces. I don't, like, I'll, I'll, it gets so recursive that I, I really kind of can't end the sentence. But it is really striking that, like, that's kind of how... He sets things up for what's effectively the second act, where where Ricky snatches, so to speak, um, Marina. It's actually funny because we're going to talk about talk to her next week, and so I'm previewing this a little bit. But there is one of my favorite scenes in this movie is extremely early in the movie. Marina's in the bathtub. You see this like mechanical scuba diver that's just like a kid's bath toy, and basically as it sort of goes along it goes right into marina's legs between her legs and then it sort of ends up at her vagina Mm -hmm. and it reminded me so much of the movie within the movie and talk to her yeah and talk to her is also a movie about men possessing a woman and sort of giving themselves the narrative that they can't do anything about it but if women had the control, they would sort of do a Prince Charles and say, well, I'm just going to tuck you in my pants. Like, you deserve to be small. You can be there anytime you want. But I'm going to pick when you're there. Yeah. Sorry for bringing the Prince Charles thing, but I've been listening to but a it's lot true. of Diana it's, content. It's true. It's true. The way you talk about these men putting women in their pocket just makes me think about Almodovar putting all of these actors in his pocket yeah you told me about that uh, a little before we started recording ingu about how like there was tension between him and victoria abril because she had thoughts about what she wanted this character to be and antonio banderas is much more open to just letting almodovar tell him what to do and and he seems like he he and um he being antonio banderas um kind of embraced uh kind of the the non-challenging version of the movie when he did some uh, interviews, uh, you know, press coverage of the movie, he kind of talked about, uh, you know, the romanticism of it in a way that like, that's not the, that's not the line we're going with Antonio. Um, (laughs) I mean, he's a young, dumb, straight actor. I can't, I mean, I don't know how, like, I don't know anything about him, but like, I just, tend to write off men under 30 who are actors as um, people I should listen to for their opinion. Yeah, yeah. June, as someone who has thought about Almodovar for, I guess, now like four decades, what do you make of his obsession with rape and sexual assault? Because this is something that Daniel and I have had a lot of off-podcast conversations about, but also your answer will go on the podcast. Just <laughs> So... At the beginning, what I agree is an absolutely gross scene in Pepe Luthi Bomb, in Kika, in Skin I Live In. He, you know, the, he keeps making them as gross scenes. This one is maybe slightly different because 
it could have been in it could have gone in a romantic way, which is worse. But anyway, at the beginning, I told myself that it was about having to challenge the accepted ways of of Spanish cinema. Um, you know, and, or just of Spain, like it was part of La Mobide, it was part of the transition that you had to be shocking, you know, all that gross stuff, all that just really like, bro, no one needs to see that in the early movies. I always thought was it's it's about, you know, ripping up the old Spain and pushing through to the new one. And thank God he let a lot of it go. You know, we don't have, you know, people with, you know, have to take laxatives all the time so that they're constantly crapping. Like, thank goodness we don't have to deal with that. You know, I don't want to see Penelope Cruz doing that, you know. But um, but I think that he, again, because he works and works until he's got to a point that he's satisfied and he can leave it behind, I think he's just never kind of figured out the right tone for for how you deal with sex. Because I think he was challenging the sort of the way that, you know, the, the established Frankist Spanish cinema dealt with sex, which was, you know, in this, this very religious and very non-realistic and very patriarchal way. He was challenging that. And so he, you know, did it in a gross, non-realistic way. And I think he's still kind of working that through. And I think he's also trying to figure out how to explore the weird way that like sex is at both times a like feel good experience and one full of pain and that like those are two so closely tied together in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways Mm -hmm. um and that like it's hard to portray that on film except through through like and through aggressive sex acts that are not um, consensual or are not fully consensual mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because like there is always that complex negotiation of what is and isn't okay and what I do and don't want even when I know it will cause me pain mm-hmm. and pleasure. Yeah. Well, yeah, because the, 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 you know, the crux of this movie is when Marina realizes she could escape and she chooses not to when she tells him, tie me up. When, um, when she says the title of the movie, yeah. of course, I stood up and clapped, as you're always supposed to do. <laughs> Absolutely. But I just, like, it was one of the most satisfying moments of the film. And I hate to say that. Yeah. Because I hate that, like, I was tricked along with her. Mm-hmm. But it, I think it speaks to, in part, his skill as a filmmaker yeah. to, yep. like, force me into that feeling, even in knowing full well all of the like disgust I've felt up to that point. And it, it felt, it reminded me so much of the scene in law of desire when Antonio is singing Lo Dudo to Pablo at the end of like, this is it right before he kills himself. It's very much that same feeling to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I loved it. I hate that, but I loved it. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So the ending, which, you know, after Lola gets to Marina, uh, they go to seek him out because he's stolen a car. He goes to the Pueblo, which, again, something that goes repeatedly in Almodovar movies, especially usually a kind of a simple character, simple mentally, 
usually an older woman, but just a kind of an, an, a guileless character, wants to return to the Pueblo. And he does return to the Pueblo, and that's when he gets to join the women, where he gets to join the family, this this orphan, this man who has been alone, gets to join the family. And it's a, that is odd because it's a very old-fashioned thing. You know, again, self-consciously, as many things are in Almodovar, that it's not, it's not unexamined, but it is still weird that for all of his challenging, he always seems to show that the Pueblo is where you will find happiness, contentment, where your um, your conflict and your challenges will be, you know, lifted from your shoulders. And I, I, as much as, you know, maybe because I grew up in a Pueblo, albeit in England rather than in Spain, it's not been my experience, but I am always challenged by how much it, it always seems to work out in his movies. And he grew up in one. He grew up in one in, in La Mancha. I couldn't wait to leave. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it sounds like a, and I, I think maybe this also goes back to Law of Desire for me, of uh, him recreating a nostalgia that maybe never existed. Hmm. And one that maybe he wanted. And that's like what he is looking for, working toward, is yeah. that creation of those, that like community of women that are his right. home. And that's why he is so interested in the the women in his work. And he surrounds himself with a fantastic cast of women. Indeed he does. Yeah. No, and, and you know, for those glorious apartments, oh, my God, those beautiful Madrileño fantasy apartments. Um, and then where you find happiness is, you know, a pile of rocks in the middle of nowhere. Please, please let there be beautiful apartments with gorgeous city views in the place of happiness, but it doesn't seem to be the, the case for Almodovar. All right, so uh, now we've reached the final segment of our show where we rank all the Almodovar movies we've seen so far. Of course, June, uh, we know you haven't seen all of these within the last three weeks necessarily, though both Ingo and I have. But um, the films we've covered so far are All About My Mother, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Law of Desire, and Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. So of those, how would you rank those best to worst, most watchable to least watchable? What would you tell our listeners? Okay, so I am looking at a list that I did in, in 2011 when I did that completist about uh, Almodovar. And I had, I had Time Me Up, Time Me Down at number 12 of what was then 18 movies. I guess I'll just go through them quickly. My number one was Talk to Her. Number two, All mm-hmm. About My Mother. Number three, Broken Embraces. Number four, Women on the Verge. Number five, Balber. Number six, Bad Education. Number seven, What Have I Done to Deserve This? Number eight, Law of Desire. Number nine, The Skin I Live In. Number 10, The Flower of My Secret. Number 11, Life Flesh. And number 12, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. And that came under the heading of Flawed and Creepy. <laughs> the correct two words. <laughs> um, well, how about you, Ingu? I have exactly June's rankings. Not of those, not all 12 <laughs> movies, but mine is still All About My Mother, then Woman on the Verge, then Law of Desire, then Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. And, of course, because I like to be different and wrong, <laughs> Women on the Verge is my top, followed by All About My Mother. Uh, Law of Desire, 
definitely better than Time Me Up, Time Me Down, which unless we cover The Skin I Live In will probably be the bottom of my list throughout. (laughs) All right. We are taking a brief break. Please join us again in three weeks on November 11th or 1111. When we discuss a movie, I have been dying for Daniel to watch since we started this podcast, 2002's Talk to Her. June, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I am always happy to have a chance to talk about Almodovar. Same, which is this why we so created much this fun. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ingu King. This is Daniel Schrader. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at allaboutamadovar at gmail.com. And we will see you next time for some sexy, sad bullfighting. Since you went into Charles and Diana, I'd wondered if you, if Ingo, you'd been watching the previews of uh, The Crown, because I know she shows up in that. Oh, I've been listening to like a podcast thing about Diana. And then I liked it so much. I ended up reading all of the Diana Chronicles by Tina Brown in like five days, which is an amazing book. Wow. Okay. All right. (laughs) Anyway, Anyway. it reminded me of Tampon Gate. Yeah, me too.